0: Hey everyone I hope you have had a great week that you've been experiencing God's grace and goodness in in big and small ways uh, I'm praying for you and, and I covet your prayers for me and my family uh, and the church team I'm, I'm excited to be stepping back today into revelation this week and as uh, as we've mentioned a few times revelation is as an apocalyptic book uh, an apocalyptic apocalypse doesn't have to be a scary word. It doesn't have to be associated with zombies. Uh, Apocalypse simply means unveiling. It's a pulling back of the curtain to help us remember the things that that things are more than they seem. It's like a parent entering a dark room of a frightened child and and, and Revelation is like Jesus flipping the light on for the early church to expose the shapes that are casting strange shadows and, and causing questions in them. Now, because Revelation is apocalyptic, it must be read like apocalyptic literature. I know I'm saying this over and over, but it's important. Uh, It's not like modern day fantasy. We don't read it that way. We don't read it like history or mystery novels, but like first century apocalyptic literature. And like all apocalyptic literature, it is full of imagery, uh, symbols, symbolic numbers, uh, and colors. And they're really meant to be a new way of looking at the truth of the gospel. The fact that Jesus is the proper king of creation and that he came, he lived, he died. and, And this is important. This is an important part of the gospel story. He reigns. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And although following him will mean suffering, he has the final justifying word. And so it's in this context that, you know, that the church properly quotes Romans eight twenty-eight where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In fact, I would say that that is Revelation in a nutshell. Revelation in a nutshell is we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. If anyone asks you what Revelation is about, that's a great verse to quote. So let's take a look. Last week we talked about about the first four seals on this mysterious scroll. That that once it's opened, will show John, uh, the author of Revelation, uh, and, and us how God will unfold his plan for his creation. And that the only one who can open this scroll, the only one with the right credentials, is the Lamb of God who was and is and is to come. Who is rightfully at the center of creation. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. In the first half of Revelation six, Revelation six, we saw that that these four horsemen came wreaking havoc on the earth, really showing us the the ailment of sin throughout history, and the war and the injustice that it naturally brings. Uh, it brings it personally, and it brings it on a global scale. Now, in the second half of Revelation six, we look at at a specific kind of suffering, suffering that comes. Uh, comes to those being associated with Jesus and suffering that comes from disassociating oneself with Jesus. So open your Bibles, if you have them, to Revelations 6. And we're going to start at verse 9. It says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So here we see the plea of the saints and and we find the saints under the altar, it says in verse 9. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. We don't have, we don't have to stretch too far to kind of figure out this scene here and, and what it kind of means. Under the altar, not an altar, but the altar. When sacrifices were made during the temple time in, in Israel, the blood of the sacrificial animal was poured at the base of the altar and, and trickled down. The, the image here. And it's shown even in the word slain, which literally comes from the Greek word to to mean have your throat slit, slaughtered. This is not accidental. And it it doesn't mean that is how all the saints under the altar died literally, but it's implying that theirs is a death that came because of their association with Jesus, the Lamb of God. And in verse 9, the the, the second half of verse 9, we see the reason they died was for their Witness for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. The ongoing theme of associating with the Lamb plays out throughout Revelation, and we see it here too. And here we see it again. It's not an accident that the word for witness, martyria in the Greek, someone who proclaimed Jesus, became the word that we use to signify dying for Jesus, a martyr. Today, And in the West, we would probably not connect the the concept of talking about or witnessing to others about Jesus with dying for him. But for much of church history and for many in the global church today, the act of testifying one's love for Jesus and the act of dying for him are very synonymous. That was definitely the situation for many in John's day, and it is the situation for many who give witness to Jesus today and as John takes this image of, of saints under the altar, he, he hears the same question he was hearing from those around him who were Christ's followers in his day. The question of the church in his day. The question we still ask. They ask in verse 10, how long? How long is this going to go on for? O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, the God who, who sees all, is in control of all, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? This has always been the language of those who love and and follow and and expect from God. In Psalm 6, 3, it says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Psalm 13, verse 2, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy, enemy be exalted over me? This is the continued plea of those who love and follow God. And and many of us have been there in different ways. We are living as you asked, God. We we have given our allegiance to you. How can this be happening? I I thought you loved us. I thought you loved your creation. Why are you allowing the forces of evil to run rampant? These are questions I hear almost every week as a pastor. And, And to be honest, there's I believe there's comfort in knowing that we are not the first to ask these questions. In Matthew 24 and, and, and 25, a section of the gospel we'll, we'll visit many more times throughout this series. Jesus has a lot to say about how the church ought to live in, a, in expectation of his return. And he makes it very clear in the midst of, of all the, the strife caused by human sin, the church is going to be caught up in the middle of it. And not only that, we'll often catch the brunt of it. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 to 13, Jesus says this. He says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So all the, all the themes that we're seeing in Revelation have already been stated by Jesus himself. Themes of, of conquest and war and famine, themes of the saints being persecuted, saints uh, giving up and following the world, and an encouragement over and over and over to persevere in the midst of it. There have been and there will continue to be times of tribulation and and pressure put on us to fear or follow the world. That's an ongoing theme in Revelation. Are you going to fear or follow the world or continue to follow the Lamb? And if you're wondering when that tribulation will happen to the church, depending on how you look at Revelation, well, how about we just ask the church in China where almost almost 44 million Christians are considered a threat to the state under surveillance, arrested, where wrecking balls demolished church mid-worship service. You're wondering when the church will suffer persecution. Ask any of the 245 million Christians living in persecution today. Last year, Christianity Today reported that between November 2017 and October 2018, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith. Over 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 2,625 believers were detained, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Many of them without trial because of their martyria, their testimony. Why do they consistently give testimony? Why Why not stop being a martyr? Because they didn't strike a deal with Jesus so that they would only follow him when it was convenient. They didn't strike a deal with the Lamb that said, we will, we, we're willing to follow the Lamb, but we will not walk the way of the Lamb. Years back, Christian musician John uh, Fisher said this about the state of the Christian witness, specifically in the U.S., but I think it reflects on us as well. Now, this is decades, a few decades ago, but I'll tell you, it's, it's convicting. He said this, he said, point a gun at each of the 60 million people who, according to Mr. Gallup's poll, are born-again Christians. Tell them to renounce Christ or have their heads blown off and then take a recount. I think he would find his troops dwindling. Actually, the price probably wouldn't have to be so extreme today. Threatening to confiscate their TV sets might just produce the same results. When faith is cheap, it is easily pawned. Ouch. Now, the number of those who call themselves Christians is much higher in the U.S. today, but, but the point is the same. And, 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 and this is the point. This is the point of the saints. The point is not that we need uh, a faith that stands on a street corner and, and preaches what, what some call the Roman row. That's what I grew up with. Or four easy steps to asking Jesus into your heart. That isn't what the church needs. And, and by the way, that form of Christianity isn't a threat to any world power. That, that's not what got, what got Christians in trouble in the first century. And it's not what gets Christians into trouble or, or have an influence in the world today. That wasn't the burden of the first century church. That, that isn't what got them killed. It was a proclamation that Jesus was king and it was a discipleship that meant your life was completely encompassed by that fact. So it affected how you spoke, what you pursued, and what was important to you. And I tell you, the culture hated it. The empire hated it because they couldn't dangle anything in front of these Christians that that would tempt them to give up their faith. There was nothing the world had to offer that Jesus didn't satisfy in a deeper level. And that's true today as well. And it cost them. They were given the promise of life, but they experienced death and asked, God, is this, is this going to go on forever? How long? And God's response may seem odd at first. It's to clothe them in white, it says in verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. They're told that the time of martyrdom is not over, and there will be more who are added to their number. And this is still true today in a big way, even if we don't experience it or see it in the West. He says, until that time be at peace, peace that you are set aside as those who belong to the Lamb, and that nothing is going on outside of God's plan and understanding. See, behind the question of how long is really, God, have you forgotten us? And God says, No, you are mine. I will bring justice. Now, what causes a bit of a a stumbling block for for some people, and this was true in the early church as well, is the phrase, a little longer. You need to wait a little longer. Some look at that and say, God's not keeping his promises. Sure, it sure doesn't seem like a little longer. But we're talking about saints in the presence of God, in the the heavenly realm. Uh, As as Peter writes in in his uh, second letter, In 2 Peter 3.8, he says, With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Well, if that's true, then we we have to toss our concept of time out the window. Not not to mention that this is apocalyptic literature, and we need to be very careful how we interpret ideas of time and space, uh, especially in light of eternity. The point is that martyrdom is a part of the story of the church. That in eternity, it has its purpose. And ultimately, we will see in the final verses of this chapter and the rest of Revelation, God is going to respond and he is going to bring justice. And at that point, all of creation will experience vindication over the powers of evil. And we see this in the opening of the sixth seal, starting at verse 12. We see the plea of the unprepared. Not the plea of the saints, but the, the plea of the unprepared, who, who refuse to be associated with the Lamb. In Revelation 6, verse 12, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black, as sackcloth, and full, the, the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky God's response to the saints, the answer John is receiving through his vision about whether or not God sees and whether or not God will do anything about it is found here in the sixth seal. Everything is exposed. Every place one thought they could hide is gone. The sky is pulled back as a scroll and we see things how they truly are. There'll be no more time There will be no more hands over our our ears and over our eyes. God will be fully revealed and all will be fully revealed. There's nowhere to hide. As terrible as the four horsemen seemed in the first half of chapter 6, as terrible as the, the conquests that we find there, the wars, the famine, all of which were opportunities to repent, they were limited. Now there's nowhere to go. This is an image of final vindication. Some would argue, and and I'd agree, that this is pointing toward the final answer to the lack of justice in the world. The crying out of the saints for justice and all of history calling out for salvation from all the calamity we saw in the four horsemen. And all that they bring, the great pains of the world, hell-bent on destruction and wanting someone to come and make it right are answered here. Here the Lamb comes, Christ comes, and He brings a complete wiping away of the old order of things. Now you might say, uh, Brad, we're only in chapter six. This can't be the ending yet. Jesus comes at the end of the book, right? Well, I would respond by saying, stop being so Western minded, stop being so 2021. We are, we are turning the events of history, past and present and future, like a diamond and seeing it from different heavenly angles. We'll see similar events in, in the seven trumpets in chapters 8 and 11 and, and the seven bowls in chapter 16, both ending with the same declaration of final judgment and, and declarations of the, the finality and beauty of the reign of Christ. Now, how is it imaged here? Earthquakes. Earthquakes. Sun becomes black, moon goes red, stars fall. How do we we interpret this? Is this a a great earthquake, earthquake caused by a nuclear explosion, followed by Russian bombs raining on America like stars falling from the sky? That was a common interpretation in the 80s. Some of you might remember that. But I think we would do better not to look to current events, but to look to the Old Testament. You might recall I've mentioned before, there are as many as 278 out of 404 verses, 278 out of 404 verses in Revelation that contain references to the Old Testament. And, and some, some scholars count over 500 hints to Old Testament Text. And it's not difficult to find this kind of language that we find in Revelation 6 in the Old Testament. And all of them are a cry for vindication against nations that have done evil and persecuted God's people. The prophet Isaiah, told by God to to prophesy against Babylon for its evil, to tell them that God is about to deal with them. He says in very poetic language in Isaiah 13, verse 10, For the stars of heaven, and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Did God take care of the Babylonians? Yes, he did. Did the sun stop working? No. Did the moon disappear? No. In Isaiah 34, speaking to the the nations of those who had inflicted pain on, on Israel, God says this in verse four, all of the hosts of heaven shall not rot away. They shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. When he talks about the heavenly hosts, he's talking about stars and and, and everything we see in the sky. Did these nations fall into destruction? Yes. Did the stars fall from heaven? No, they're still there. These are the very elements, the powers of the day believed gave them power. God is saying, I will remove your power. In Ezekiel 32, the prophet of God is told to speak these words to Pharaoh of Egypt about the destruction they will experience at the hands of of Babylon. In Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and 8, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Was this physical darkness that God threatened? No, could, could he have? Yeah. In Rocky four, not in scripture, but still important. When Drago said to Rocky, I must break you. Did he mean he would snap Rocky in half? No, he meant he is going to beat him up so badly that it will destroy his spirit. This is the kind of stuff That we read about in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, in this poetic language, it has more to do with political shifts and the removal of pride and haughtiness. Seemingly untouchable kingdom powers being destroyed by God. It's a reminder that those who are uh, reading the book for the first time, that, that God took care of Babylon. He took care of Pharaoh, and he will take care of Rome, the current Babylon, threatening the church in the first century. He sees, and he will ultimately take care of the powers of evil, The Lamb is coming to take his rightful place, and all seen and unseen powers will be no match for him. Mountains and islands, big and small, rich and poor, powerful and weak, will be overwhelmed by his arrival. As Craig Keener says, no marks of distinction will exempt anyone from judgment, from the divine Caesar all the way down. This doesn't mean that all receive the same judgment. It's just making clear that those who think they will escape because of power or title or cunning will have nowhere to hide. Everyone will be on an equal level. You think you're better than the slave or the poor? You will be given no special treatment. And notice in, in, uh, in verse 16 what their cry is. It's hide us. That's their plea. Hide us. There's not a call for repentance. There's no call For mercy, there is a continued attempt to hide. A cry out, it's interesting, a cry out to creation to implode and hide them from their creator. See, that interesting juxtaposition that we have between the saints under the altar and those who are calling to be under the rocks of the mountain. One group is saying, how long do we have to wait? And the other is saying, not yet. We aren't ready. One is under the altar, and one is asking to be covered by the mountains. One is given rest and a white robe, and the other cannot stand and is clothed in the darkness of a cave. Who can stand, they ask. An important question. Well, the answer comes in the following chapter, which we will unpack next week, but I think it's important to get a glimpse of in light of this text. Who can stand? Well, those who are robed in white those from every tribe and nation and, and land who rely not on their title or position, but on the lamb, on the title of belonging to the lamb. In chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Who can stand the saints? Those who belong to the Lamb, those clothed in white, need not fear the wrath. Of the Lamb. Now let me finish by saying this. The judgment of the wicked and those who have opposed the church, the gospel, is not a reason for celebration, it's a reason for lament. When the saints ask, how long until you vindicate us? The question is not, God, when are you going to mow down our enemies? When will you go terminator, indiscriminate on, on all those who oppose you? The question is specifically, God, we've, we've lived for you and proclaimed your gospel and reign. And evil people did, did evil things to us. They, they slaughtered us. And you are a just God. When? Will you deal justly? When will you? When will the world look at the lives we lived and the suffering we suffered and the deaths we died and see the risen Christ and say they were on the right side of history and we were not? Guys, the ultimate vindication that scripture gives is not the destruction of those who oppose God. It's their salvation. The ultimate judgment happened at the cross. So the, the greatest vindication takes place in people's lives when they find their path through its gospel. That is the heart of God, and it needs to be the heart of his church. In Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God says, Have I any any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? The Apostle Peter echoes this sentiment in a text I shared half of already. In 2 Peter Chapter three, verses eight to nine says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And this is why, this is why we have to keep this in mind. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So let me ask you, How is your heart for those who oppose God? How is your heart for the proud atheist? The angry person who spews hatred for the church on Facebook? How is your heart for the addict? Do you share the heart of God that all would come to repentance? Do do we love those who hate us and pray for those who persecute us? See, it's, it's the Lamb's hope. It's the Lamb's hope that the number of those who call out to be hidden by the mountains in chapter 6 of Revelation would decrease and the number of those from every tribe and every nation around the throne of the Lamb in chapter 7 would increase. That every enemy of God would turn and be added to the number of the saints around the throne clothed in white. There are many pleas from the faithful in Scripture for God to deal with the ungodly. And some of them are pretty flowery curses, poetically calling down fire from heaven and asking him to smite. But the heart of God, his desire before the return of his son and the remaking of heaven and earth is repentance, forgiveness, recreated lives and adding to the number of the brothers and sisters who call themselves the community of the Lamb. Because that's why why faith that is truly framed by the heart and mission of God for his creation must always have a heart for the lost. That's why this church, CA Church, will continue to love those who have not yet found their hope in the Lamb. And we will go, and we will give, and we will pray for the lost. It is what it means to have the heart of God. He is coming. Do not confuse his patience With slowness, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Church, I love you. I miss you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, and may he give you peace. Amen.